Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I'm back, see? And you're not going to stop me this time. I'll talk till the cows come home. Well, I'll read the Declaration of Independence, see, and the, and the Constitution, see, and we won't stop till that boys camp is, is up and running, up in Millet Creek, see, and, and when I'm done with that, whatever Saunders throws me next, I'll read that too. I'll pass that. <laughs> your, your impression has not improved since last episode, <laughs> I don't think, unfortunately. And that's why I brought it back Yeah, for thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> People may not know that Jason there is doing an impression of Jimmy Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) Come on now, see? (laughs) And in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we're talking about the films of 1939. And here we are at the Cannes Film Festival winner. And uh, there's a whole story behind that. But basically, that's what's going on here. And it is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, starring James Stewart, directed by Frank Capra. A classic, really. Again, after we took a detour into a movie that no one has seen, also starring Jimmy Stewart, we're back to the major classics here with Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. What's the big story, Josh? Tell us the story. Well, okay. Wow, we love stories. It's very exciting. Um, No, it is actually quite interesting. So in this episode, usually we uh, look at either the Palme d'Or winner, which is the top prize at Cannes, or sometimes a different award winner if the Palme d'Or winner is not really right for us to talk about. Uh, 1939 was meant to be the first year of the Cannes Film Festival. It was all set. There was a lineup of 30 films. A bunch of Hollywood stars arrived in Cannes. And on August 31st of 1939, there was a big opening star-studded gala There was a private showing of the film, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and the official festival was meant to kick off on September 1st, 1939. What happened on September 1st, 1939? Hitler invaded Poland. Man, this guy just tries to ruin everything. He does. (laughs) And I love that, of course, we know now that 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 was a pretty big deal. But at the time, at first, they were like, we'll postpone the festival for 10 days because they thought, I'll be over by then. I mean, we kind of had that in a totally different way with a worldwide pandemic. And it's like, yeah, we'll keep the Oscars scheduled or this or that. So, you know, uh, not a fan of Hitler. No, no. And of course, 10 days was not enough time to defeat Hitler. And the festival was eventually canceled. And the actual first year of the Cannes Film Festival was not until after World War II in 1946. So no awards were given out at the time, of course, but 80 years later, in 2019, the daughters of Jean Zay, who was the original founder, he was a French culture minister and was the the force behind getting this festival going as a, a competitor to the Venice Film Festival, which at the time was like the only international film festival that existed, his daughters decided to restage the festival in uh, Orléans, or Orléans, the uh, hometown of Jean Zay. They rounded up all 30 movies that were initially meant to play at the festival. They recruited a jury, and that jury awarded Mr. Smith Goes to Washington the top prize, which was not called the Palme d'Or because it was an unofficial event, and they named it after Jean Zay himself. So that is the long story of why this is the 1939 campaign. I mean that's a that's an excellent story uh, and very cool of the daughters to put it on and and give these awards. I you know you're right. Berlin didn't get started till 1951, so it was Venice or bust. Right, right. Mm. and and at this time Venice had also been co-opted by Mussolini, and there there is a Venice winner from this year that I think I forget what it's called that I looked at when we were planning this season, but it's just, it's some like wartime propaganda film because they were, they were forced to give it that award essentially. Well, speaking of propaganda, this has an interesting history of, you know, we're talking about these dictators and this movie was banned in those countries. It was banned in Italy and Germany under those dictatorships, but it also had amazing blowback here in the U S overseas. A lot of them thought it was rah, rah American propaganda. And here in the U S they thought it was rah, rah, pro-communist take down the government propaganda. Right, which I think is seems ironic to us now as we watch it 
from our current perspective because it does, at least to me, seem like very highly patriotic. And of course, both Jimmy Stewart and Frank Capra were lifelong Republicans, not communists in any way. So it's interesting that that was the reaction at the time. I mean, talk about patriotic. The thing starts and right away you hear Yankee Doodle Dandy, right? And you're like, oh, okay, we're in it. Right. I mean, and you can maybe, you know, you could play something like that or show show this kind of imagery and have it be ironic, but I don't think that's what's going on here at all. No. Um, when I watched it, um, you know, I guess it's classified, you know, Capra is a master of dramedy and this would be you know, kind of a, uh, a government drama, but uh, I took this as a fantasy movie. <laughs> well, it's interesting. All like pretty much all the reviews that I looked at classify this as a comedy. They talk about Capra as this director of comedy and how that this this is his political comedy. And I guess there's comedic elements to it, but to me, it definitely struck me more as a drama. Or yes, a fantasy at this point. It <laughs> really it is. Right. The co- the comedy elements are those you know classic uh, Jimmy Stewart throwaway lines where someone says something and he like uh is very self-effacing or realizes that he's not gonna be able to push the um the 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 rock up the mountain and he makes some comment about what a useless effort everything is so he's great at that and he's great at that in every movie right and and especially early on when when mr smith initially goes to washington and he's this kind of fish out of water and people don't know how to react to him there is comedy to that but it felt like to me it wasn't the main focus of the movie no the main focus is the um the the capra myth if you will the american dream which capra lived as a young immigrant child working his way all the way up to the the uh the lore and the height of hollywood but uh the idea of you know, one man, if he rolls up his sleeve and has the right morals, can live the American dream. Right, right. And that is very much on display here. So uh, although, as you said, there was some backlash from people in Washington, although some of it just reading through the like Wikipedia, it seems like has sort of graduated into urban legend and whether all of this really happened to the degree that that some people had said at the time is not clear. But certainly some politicians were not happy with this film, but the public was happy with this film. It grossed $9 million on its budget of $1.5 million. That may include some re-releases later, but still pretty good. And it was also nominated for 11 Oscars. It won only one of those Oscars for Best Original Story, which is an award that doesn't exist anymore. The idea of creating someone, a writer who created the story but didn't write the screenplay, and that was the award given for this film to Louis R. Foster, who won that award, who is not the screenwriter, though. Um, it was also nominated for Best Picture, for Best Director, for Best Actor for Jimmy Stewart, Best Adapted Screenplay, uh, adapted from that story, Best Supporting Actor for Claude Rains, and I thought, very interestingly, for Harry Carey, who plays the President of the Senate, which is kind of an amusing little side character, but not, to me, an Oscar-nominated performance worthy really uh you definitely you definitely uh he ingratiates himself to you 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 like that character and you like seeing him on screen. yeah but i mean compared especially to claude rains who has a whole range of emotion in this film and really builds a character that you can care about that guy is just kind of like an amusing little someone to cut to when some crazy stuff happens and he gives this little look well they both lost to our friend thomas mitchell who played uh diz Moore in this movie but of course wanted for his work in Stagecoach, as we have already discussed. A few other facts to go along with that, Josh. Uh, Louis R. Foster's story that this was based on was unpublished. He just sold the rights to it. Uh, it's called The Gentleman from Montana and is kind of based on a real politician. Uh, and Foster went on to write and direct over 100 films and TV series between 1926 and 60, nominated also for Best Original Screenplay for The More the Merry. The other nominations for this film, Best Art Direction, Best Editing, Best Original Score, and Best Sound Recording, none of which it won, but certainly an impressive lineup of nominations there. And yeah, you know, the thing about that, you're talking about that story its that was unpublished. It was a weird thing that would happen in Hollywood, I feel like, in this era. Like, I wonder if that was really a story that was meant to be published or it was just, again, sort of like an idea that he sold to a studio that was that was considered somehow like a quote original story it's weird how that worked in that in this era well 
Is it though? Because there are plenty of stories today of like, I couldn't get uh, my screenplay sold. So I turned it into a graphic novel and then they bought the rights to the graphic. Novel. Right. And there are instances where that graphic novel doesn't actually exist, but the, the idea that it would exist was enough to get Hollywood to buy into it. So I'm not sure. Anyway, it is weird to always read about too those those Oscars for categories that don't exist anymore, like the the juvenile Oscar that we talked about in our Wizard of Oz episode. Yeah, in this one, you could have had best statue. Best statue. That is uh, mm. certainly an idea. I think Lincoln Memorial has a chance. Sure. Uh, you think the Lincoln Memorial deserves an Oscar for its performance in this film? I mean, uh, Senator Jefferson Smith was quite odd by. He it. was indeed. You, know, you could feel you could feel the patriotism welling up inside. Yeah, he's he needs to get that looked at. He's got a lot of that going on. Um, so, critics were also generally quite positive about this film. Frank S. Nugent in the New York Times said, "Mr. Capra is a believer in democracy as well as a stout-hearted humorist." Although he is subjecting the capital's bill collectors to a deal of quizzing and to a scrutiny which is not always tender, he still regards them with affection and hope as the implements, however imperfect they may be, of our kind of government. Most directors would not have attempted to express that faith otherwise than in terms of drama or melodrama. Capra, like the juggler who performed at the Virgin's Shrine, has had to employ the only medium he knows. And his comedy has become, in consequence, not merely a brilliant jest, but a stirring and even inspiring testament to liberty and freedom, to simplicity and honesty, and to the innate dignity of just the average man. Tell me more about this juggler and this uh, I don't know. Shrine. I think it's maybe some kind of biblical reference. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I, maybe I should have looked into that further. <laughs> That's what caught me there. But... Uh... Yeah, here we go. The rah-rah started. Yeah, exactly. But but like I said, I think it's interesting that all of these critics consider this a comedy and are talking about it in terms of how funny it is. And I, not that they're not taking it seriously, but I think they are less focused on that patriotic element maybe than, than we are today. I, you almost wonder if there is something subversive about it because... Is it so patriotic or um, so American that the message he's really trying to impart actually does sneak through? I, I mean, I think the message that he's trying to impart is the surface message, right? I don't think there's something subversive beyond what is very obvious here. And it's critical. That anything is possible in America and you can fight the machine. Right, exactly. Or... And, you know, but I mean, that just pointing out that the machine exists and there is this corruption is something the reason it caused that stir is because it's something that movies weren't really doing at this time something under the Hayes code that you maybe wouldn't do and so that is something to us that seems extremely obvious but and in fact if you made a movie today that didn't depict politicians as to some degree corrupt people would not buy yeah. into it um but at the time that wasn't really something that they were doing right that's why i was saying it felt like a fantasy and i was reading about the head of the Hayes Code at the time, uh, who was before this uh, movie came out. And I think even before he saw it, he was like, this is a dangerous film. This could be uh, harmful to America. We have great people in the Senate. And then he watched and he's like, well, heck, this is really the story of America. Anyone can do anything. We got to get this thing out there. Right. Because ultimately, even if there's this corrupt machine in the generic non-named state or whatever, and Claude Rains's character has been, you know, uh, corrupted by it, that the, the decorum of the Senate and the structure of American democracy allows Jefferson Smith to prevail. Right. So it's Joseph Breen who was the head in it. Uh, it looks, he said, it looks to us like one that might well be loaded with dynamo, uh -oh. both for the motion picture industry and for the country at large. And then uh, after he watched it, he said, the, the Senate is made up of a group of fine, upstanding citizens who labor long and tirelessly for the best interests of the nation. That's totally what we think now, too. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's just i mean and that's the toughest thing i mean we'll get into it but the toughest thing is actually uh buying into this myth even for the sake of the yeah film. i i agree i agree 
So the Hollywood Reporter in their unbylined review was also quite positive about this. They said, Frank Capra has another smash hit in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It is an accomplishment for which Capra and all of his aides may well take unstinted pride. Capra misses nothing in transplanting to the screen Lewis Foster's story of the young senator, whose belief in the Constitution of the United States remains unshattered, even though every member of the crooked machine of Washington politics strikes at him with force imaginable. There is flag-waving, but not too much of it. Mr. Capra manages to interpolate it in the picture in just the right dose. Uh, I thought there was plenty of fun. Yeah, there was a lot. It was a lot. Even to the point of like, uh, well, we're going to pay for this boys camp because all the all the boy rangers are going to send in their nickels and dimes and, and we're going to just pay for it through the the goodwill of children. Right. I I did like that. That was like the, the, the like heartwarming thing that he was doing, making poor children repay the government. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I wonder if like there's a, a, a economist who worked out like what it would actually, how many children would have to donate a penny or a nickel for them to get the camp. Cause my thought was like, okay, well now they've donated to this camp. So they have to have access to it. Like, is this a one-week camp and we just rotate hundreds and hundreds in and out each week? Because it seems like there's going to be just a, a, a vast amount of children all wanting to attend here. Boys only. Oh, yeah, of course. You can't have <laughs> girls learning about government. Well, not at the boys camp, see? But, right, I mean, he gets that the, those big uh, baskets of letters at one point from all the boys who want to go to the camp. And, and Saunders, Gene Arthur's character, his secretary tells him that those are just the ones that are local, right? That showed up in the mail right away from presumably like the DC area. Uh, who knows how many there will be. But uh, yeah, it does seem slightly exploitive of these boys, especially because his whole idea is that we want to get people from all walks of life, boys from all walks of life, presumably ones who couldn't afford otherwise maybe to go to a nice summer camp in the wilderness or whatever. And how are they going to send you their nickels and dimes if they don't have any? I, I don't know if uh, Senator Smith has worked this out yet. See, I think this bill really, maybe this is the moral is that we rush this bill into. Right. He into insists Senate on writing it passage. in a one night, even though Saunders tells him that's not how it's done. And I have to <laughs> yeah. say, I, I think Jefferson Smith was not a very good senator. Maybe that's the real moral is that the, the senators, you know, in the slow process that barely ever moves anything along incremental is the best that we can Well, at do. least more considered than, than Jefferson Smith. Uh, so finally, I figured it's good to get a review from Washington, from someone in the town itself. Jay Carmody in the Washington Evening Star said, the common man who is all true sons of democracy once more is Capra's hero. He is a hero who comes to vital, meaningful, humorous life on the screen because he lives that way in Capra's heart. Whether his name is Deeds or Smith, whether he goes to town or to Washington, he is fascinating because he is every man underneath. About this heroic average man, Mr. Capra can speak with matchless eloquence. So impatient is he to do so in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington that he is bothered not at all by the necessity to make the Senate look like a capitalist's asylum of gigolos or of virtually bashing in the face of journalism. It all is done in that spirit of fun which only the solemn condemn, and anyone who can remain solemn in the presence of Capra's film, with its alternately tolerant, humorous sweep and affecting poignance, should have new x-rays taken. Of course, there's a journalist who's offended by the portrayal of journalism. Right, I mean, and know. I feel like actually the portrayal of journalism in this movie is much more generous and fair in a way than, than the portrayal of the Senate. I mean, we have the guy who runs the machine who is sort of a William Randolph Hearst character, right? He, he owns all these newspapers and he tells them what to publish. But Thomas Mitchell's character, Diz, right? And his colleagues in Washington, they're all about getting the truth. And they tell Mr. Smith, hey, we don't have to get reelected so we can tell the people what's real. And that's what they do. Some of that is true, but there's that whole sequence of where he meets the journalists for the first time and they're like, oh, show us how to do a bird call. And he makes a pose and then you see like the juxtaposition of the picture on the front page of a newspaper. Uh, Smith says Washington stinks right. or whatever. So there's a, there's a lot of that yellow journalism that was popular in uh, Theodore Roosevelt's time. And that, of course, was the 
1890s and this is the 1930s. So let's move on, yeah. Josh. <laughs> All right, let's do that. So, hey, Josh. Yeah. In the early 2000s, if you were if you were saying to yourself, which big time movie star is going to remake Frank Capra's Mr. Deeds films? <laughs> Would you have guessed Adam Sandler? Yeah, no. I have not seen Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Uh, which this was initially conceived as a sequel to that with that character, Mr. Deeds, who was played by Gary Cooper, would be sent to the Senate and ultimately was switched around so that it was a standalone piece. But uh, it, and nor have I seen the Adam Sandler remake, Mr. Deeds, but I believe you've seen at least the Sandler movie, right? I've seen it twice, as a matter of fact. W why is that? Well, I watched it once in the theater when, you know, I was watching everything that he was doing. And then I revisited it, I think, to... Um, perhaps research a project and it didn't hold up. Although John Turturro saying that image will haunt my dreams forever or is it nightmares forever was his excellent. What about very, very sneaky, sir? <laughs> John Turturro is part of the movie. He's so good. Yeah. Do you think Sandler would do a good job remaking Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? I mean, if anyone could pull off a filibuster with all <laughs> that he's got, you know, the talking, the singing, the characters, like I think, um, you know, he's ingratiated himself as a as a, a modern American movie star, of course. So I don't know. There's always a remake of this movie. But how would you remake it now with the the cynicism that uh, that we all kind of are aware of at this point? Yeah, I think it would be I mean, as hard as it is for us to buy into watching this movie now, it would be even harder for us to buy into a new version of it that was set in the present. I think you'd have to do the opposite, right? And I was actually thinking about that while watching this movie, right? Like the innocent senator who wants to change the world, you know, goes to Washington and the machine tells him how it works. And then he's like, okay, cool. I'll play that game instead, you know? Because uh, that made sense to me when we were watching this movie and Payne was explaining to him like, yes, I was just like you, a wide-eyed young man who came to Washington to do the best for his people. But I learned fast and furious that you had to playing ball if you wanted to stay in the game, right? And uh, and, they, and he was able to get stuff done because of that. And I was like, well, why are you, uh, Senator Smith, so intent on putting this on Millet Creek? They just offered you other campsites. Like, you could stay in the Senate, you could get your uh, camp up and running, and you could do other things. All you got to do is let them get on with their grift. Right, exactly. I mean, and in fact, initially, Senator Payne, Claude Rain's character, encourages him to make the bill about the camp. And presumably would have supported it if it just was somewhere else rather than at the creek. And we're never even really told, like, is this damn, like, yeah, it's obviously going to involve some kickbacks to the machine or whatever, but is it, like, dangerous? Is it uh, environmentally unsound? Like, what's wrong with putting the dam there other than that some people are going to get paid off? Right. It, it made me think of movies from the 70s, Chinatown, Deliverance, things where we see... Uh, the the ecology play into the economy. Right. And I don't think in 1939 they were all that concerned with the environment anyway. So it really is not clear what they think is wrong with this, other than that maybe some people will profit off of it. When you were watching it, did you think like, hey, dude, just play ball, move your camp, and everyone wins here? I did think that, especially because they, they like you said, they they mention, like, first of all, because he gets the support initially, which seems genuine, like, they want him to go ahead with the little camp. They think it's a fun project for him to do. They're all in favor of it. And then they talk about how there could have been other locations. And to be fair, they maybe don't give him that option as clearly, and they jump right to let's frame him for crimes. But uh, yeah, I think he could have played ball and everyone could have been happy. They even warned him. Right. Like, hey, if you don't go along with this, you're going to be screwed. And uh, he should have gone along with it. Yeah, I agree. We are pro-corruption here at Awesome Movie Year. <laughs> so, Jason, had you seen this before? Never had seen it, Josh. Uh, it's a, it's a, a Capra is kind of a blind spot for me, so this is fun. Had you seen any Capra movies other than this before? I don't think so. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It, I mean, I haven't seen a ton, so, you know, I can't say it's that crazy. But yeah, it's, uh, I mean, this is a huge classic and, of course, uh, a number of other films of his that are major, major works. So uh, something that, especially, you know, It's a Wonderful Life is something that's on TV constantly. It feels like, like The Wizard of Oz, something that's like always there in the background over time. Yeah. So I've, I'm in the middle of that right now watching it and I'm enjoying that. But I, I think I... 
realized why I stayed away from Capra movies because I knew that kind of like uh, the Capra myth of, you know, rah, rah America and, you know, uh, anyone could do anything. And if you look at the movies I love, like when we talk about 1975, right? I picked Dog Day Afternoon as my pick. Could there be a more opposite movie of, you know, uh, the values and what what America really is of those two films? Right. Yeah. I mean, he has that optimism, even though it's, you know, it's tempered with like this movie is is obviously willing to acknowledge problems, but it's ultimately uh uplifting or meant to be uplifting about the the possibilities of the american dream and the american everyman and capra is is as big a director as there's ever been in hollywood so that's on me for not seeing those films yeah that's on me it is well i mean it's on me too i haven't seen that many i had seen this before a while ago 10 15 years ago i think and just one of those movies that's you know a classic i should watch and honestly i didn't remember really whether i had liked it or not i feel like it hadn't really made much of an impression on me back then either way and it, yeah, it kind of didn't really make that huge of an impression on me this time either but i have seen it's a wonderful life and a couple other lesser known capra films i love it happened one night uh with uh, uh clark gable and claudette colbert which is uh just uh, like the still like the template for every romantic comedy that exists to this day and is a fantastic film that's my favorite of the few that i've seen Capra was the, it happened one night. We talked about this too, the first film to win all five big Oscars, right? Uh, picture director, actor, actress, and adapted screenplay. Yeah, yeah, it's a great, great film. Um, so Dave, had you watched this before? I had not. Um, I'm pretty sure I saw Arsenic and Old Lace like years and years and years ago, but that's the only other Capra that I had seen. Yeah, well, we're all uh, ignorant about one of Hollywood's greatest filmmakers. Yeah. There's a capricious lack of that's not the right word for (laughs) capra we'll be back (laughs) he tried at least (laughs) we'll come back with more of our general thoughts on mr smith goes to washington welcome back to awesome movie year In this episode of our season on the films of 1939, we are talking about the retrospective Cannes Film Festival winner, which is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And I feel like our our cynicism and support of corruption has made us unable to enjoy this film sufficiently, right? It's not that we support corruption. It's that we accept I had a, I took history of Italy in college and uh, my professor Keith Botsford gave this like great lecture about how in Italy, it's just assumed that whoever's going to be in power will be corrupt and they accept it as part of their political system. And because it's accepted, it like almost works better because there's no one fighting against it. It's like, ah, okay. He took an extra million, but look, he built a new swing set for the kids, right? That type of million dollar swing set. Well, you know what I mean. Right. No, no. And I, I feel like this is this is that. Like that's why it, it's strange for me. I don't often watch movies where um, I feel like the second half is better than the first half. It's always like, oh, the first half is great, and I hope the second half can keep its momentum. Um, but this, like Oppenheimer, was that for me last year. I didn't like the first hour, but then I got really into it. And then uh, this one was the same thing. It was so patriotic and like you know, shooting fireworks out of its ears, waving the flags. I just couldn't get into it. But then it really kind of develops into something more. And that third act is a great third act, which who knew that a filibuster could be so exciting, right? Um, and and Jimmy Stewart really just delivers in that third act. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all good. I I don't have any, like, strong criticisms of it. It just didn't necessarily reach me, I think, in the way that it's meant to, either emotionally being invested in Mr. Smith and his uh, crusade or his sort of realization of how things work, um, or even the love story that we get. I mean, it's not the main focus, but there's certainly a romance here between Jefferson Smith and Saunders, his secretary played by Gene Arthur. He just mm. didn't, none of it really did much that for would me. Be- Today, you could expel him from the Congress just for that power vacuum. You know, you can't be dating your your secretary anymore, Josh. Right, right. Well, I mean, you probably can. You just have to make sure that it's all consensual. And, and even so, it's probably better not to. But um, 
I'll give you some criticisms if yeah, you want. Yeah, please. So first of all, it's two hours and 10 minutes. And like we said, there's a lot of like rah-rah patriotism. I think we could have gotten that across uh, with uh, some of that cut, correct? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely am very like that, that, that stuff rubs me the wrong way. On the other hand, I'm like, I understand what the movie is trying to do with this. It just is off-putting to me. I mean, yeah, I get it too. But I think, you know, getting that under that two-hour mark, that hot 155 would have helped. <laughs> Here's my main criticism of it. Even before we meet Jefferson Smith, they tell us of the grift and the plan, right? So there's really, there's obviously no reveal because we learn about it in the first eight minutes. Um, And then that kind of takes away all the tension from everything until you get to act three when they're like, wait, he wants to do this on Millet Creek, but it's an hour and a half of no tension before that. And then of course, those first 15 minutes I mean, you see Taylor who comes back and Payne's a big character, but a lot of it is focused on the governor, uh, Happy Smith or whatever. Not Happy Smith, Governor Happy, right? That's his yeah, name. Something. Happy yeah, that's his nickname and his 15 kids or whatever. Right. And that, and we don't need to see any of that with him. And uh, yeah, Happy Hopper. We don't need to see his kids say, well, Jefferson Smith's the man for you, dad. Right. Like, you know, I think that could have been done in a very short scene, but we have them at dinner and they're all talking and I will not take this from my children, you know? And so I feel like the first 15 minutes could have been reduced to a scene. I feel like the patriotism could have been reduced more. And I feel like, you know, other films where they save that reveal, um, you know, Parallax View, Manchurian Candidate, where there's a little more kind of tension going on, uh, works better for me. Well, I will agree with you that all the stuff with the governor and the machine could have been conveyed a lot more quickly. And that especially because Jefferson Smith is the character that we're going to eventually end up caring about. And the governor really basically disappears from the movie after that first part. Um, They could have gotten to that a lot more quickly and you could have still clearly understood what was going on in terms of the corruption and how the governor was beholden to this machine. I'm going to disagree with you, though, about the idea that we needed tension or suspense about the the graft that was going on. I don't think this is what this like. It's that's not the kind of movie this is. This isn't the parallax view. This isn't a thriller. That's not what Capra's going for. In fact, it's important that we're aware of that because we need to understand the the system or whatever better than Jefferson Smith does, so we can follow his journey to realizing what's really going on and we're aware of it while he isn't and if and you know if there's tension that's what it is it's the audience knowing something that the main character doesn't so i i don't think it should have been a big reveal like all of a sudden in you know uh, in the middle of the second act or somewhere later we we realize oh wait uh, claude rains is corrupt what the guy that he admires is actually a uh, part of the machine or whatever. I, I don't think you need that, that kind of twist or something like that. That's not this kind of movie. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. And I think because I learned about it in the first 10 minutes, I think we could have got along with Mr. Smith's journey as opposed to being a step ahead of him. And I think it might've been more effective, but I, I, I hear you. I'm okay with it. Like, you know, I can reach across the aisle here. <laughs> from one uh, unnamed party to the other unnamed party. Not just that, Josh. You know where I'm from, don't you? Your state. The state. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And you're from the state as well. I'm from, well, they always say like my state and our state, you know, so make sure yeah. it's like to do not, not the states that the other senators are from, but right. our state. Get this news back to the state of media. Right. Right. So how about that? That's another aspect that I found so amusing is like, so I, I did think it was a good job after the machine warned him not to mess with them that uh, they just railroaded him. And, you know, the the montage of Taylor calling every caper uh, that he had access to or power with uh, just kind of started printing all these uh, half-truths or spinning the story however they wanted. And it was interesting because it's the 30s, right? So the access is what the access is. It's not a 24-hour news cycle. But he does have a secret weapon the boy ranger newspaper right where they call home and it's like well, yeah. well they didn't even do it it was it was the mom and us and uh clarissa right saunders yeah 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 saunders calls mr smith's mom ma smith and uh, yeah. ma smith gets all the boys together to put out a special issue of boys stuff 
which is uh, it's a, it's a twist on I when I was a kid I used to get Boys Life magazine which was the like Boy Scouts magazine which I think right. that's what it's meant to be. And the Boy Scouts wouldn't lend their name to this movie because they're an upstanding organization. Right. Yeah, there is. That's another thing I feel like that we (laughs) when we look at this movie now, Mr. Smith is real invested in those boys in a way that would be quite uncomfortable were that a character trait now. I mean, he's he's Jimmy Stork. Come on. Right. No, I know. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that we we are meant to uh, think that he's doing something untoward with those boys. But if that was the a character now, we would maybe imagine that that was the case. <laughs> well, I think what we've proved more than anything is uh, things have gotten much worse in a lot of ways in the last 80 years. Yeah, I think so. 85 years. But it's funny to me how, you know, that was the antidote. Like, even though he's the most powerful person in the government or running the scenes behind the government, he has every newspaper in the country just blasting this guy. Boy stuff. Well, we'll do a expose on that. And then everyone will learn the truth. Yeah, it's not good when you have uh, expose of boys stuff. Uh, <laughs> well, well, Josh, you're, you went in a far different direction. Yeah, no, than I, I, was I apologize <laughs> for impugning Mr. Smith, a healthy, red-blooded American man who is more, you know, he's into Saunders. So Saunders, he's got Susan Payne. Right. You know, yeah. Possibly. Yeah. He's super uh, horny for Susan Payne. So, but, but imagine that, Josh, like today, if like, uh, there was a, a government like what if uh, Edward Snowden had revealed all his secrets in Highlights magazine <laughs> with, with Goofus and Gallant <laughs> reporting on it or something? <laughs> Would that ever be? Whoa, did you guys get the new Highlights? We have to really look into the, these government operatives in this uh, in this spying situation. Yeah, I mean, I think, though, it's the equivalent of now it would be like a website, you know, a grassroots thing that people would put online or on social media or whatever. So, yeah, it's silly. Maybe, but- maybe a meeting in Fortnite. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, you I mean- get the kids to, to get together in a game or whatever. I, or I guess I guess the the easier thing to compare it to is the like the true crime explosion, right? Because. You know, in, in the thin, the thin blue line, Errol Morris was able to kind of get a case where an innocent man was convicted, relooked at, and eventually overturned. And now you see, like, you know, the 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 Murdoch murders and everything, and and all that that kind of. There's been a lot of true crime podcasts that have actually led to developments and and uh, convictions and cases. Right, a podcast is another thing that could be the the modern equivalent of this, but. I will say that, I mean, you said you liked it, that they railroad him so badly. I feel like at a certain point, it gets so over the top when Taylor is like ordering his people to run over the boys in the street. Yeah, that gets a little crazy. I agree with that, you. You know, then then your political point is almost lost because the audience is like, no one would really do this. And, and when the corruption becomes so cartoonish, it no longer has like real world resonance because you're like, oh, this couldn't possibly really happen. I'm sure everyone is upstanding. No one would do this. Whereas corruption of course is real even if they're not running over boys in the street yeah i think that's fair that seems like something that um the newspaper owner in north would have done (laughs) bringing it back to our friend rob reiner (laughs) in one of our earliest episodes the child who is running the newspaper who you know is for north but really against north so talk about a corrupt machine Mm -hmm. yeah you remember far more plot details of north than i do i think Josh, what about the big filibuster where, you know, they they really ramp it up to the point where like the press is running out of the Senate chambers. Ah, filibuster, filibuster. It's the most exciting thing in government filibuster. But then, you know, Jimmy Stewart really delivers in that scene. He does. I mean, and, and we have to remember, too, that Jimmy Stewart wasn't the major star at this time that he is now. And this was a big breakthrough for him. You know, Gary Cooper was supposed to star in this film and and didn't. And he was the lesser known replacement. And this is a really star making role for him because it gets him to show so much of the range, right? He's got that filibuster where it's, it's very dramatic and he's really, you know, putting himself into it emotionally, but he's also got the light comedic moments and he's got the romance with Saunders and it really shows off a whole range of acting skills for him. This is uh, the second movie we've covered this year where he has been second billed to the leading lady, uh, in this case, Gene Arthur. And I think in the Joan Crawford instance, Joan Crawford was at least as much of his lead as he was in Ice Follies of 1939. But here he's clearly the lead. Yeah. I mean, this is an instance, I think, like when we talked about Stagecoach, where John Wayne was billed below Claire Trevor, 
where the female star was just more famous. And so she ends up billed higher, even though she's not really the lead. Um, but yeah, I mean, the filibuster scene is is iconic for a reason. It's interesting that it's like basically the end of the movie, you know, and the movie ends very abruptly, which was something common of movies in this era. And I appreciate that they don't, modern movies often go on like way longer than after the story has ended. But they did film a whole bunch of other stuff for this film um, with to really like, clearly wrap it up and show you how everything went well and the machine was destroyed, et cetera. Because I feel like you get to the end and he sort of succeeds in the filibuster, mainly because uh, Senator Payne admits that what he was saying is true or whatever. But you don't really get like, okay, so what did he accomplish exactly? Like, is he going to get the boys camp? Is he going to stop this dam? Is he going to you know, take down Taylor, like all he's done is, is successfully talk for a really long time. Like what has he accomplished? Well, from what I read, the ending, the stuff that was left out, uh, you tell me if you want any of this over where they ended it. Stuart and Arthur returned to Smith's hometown where they had met by a big parade. Okay. I could deal with that. That's like a good little ending scene and they're in love and married and that's fine. Like I could do that one. Right. The Taylor political machine is shown being crushed. I'm not exactly sure how. Maybe he goes to jail, whatever. Smith, riding a motorcycle, visits Senator Payne and forgives him. And then a visit to Smith's mother is included. Like, it just feels that's all tacked on stuff to me. Right. No, I agree. And like I said, I think I do appreciate how movies uh, of this era, they get to the end of the story and they're like, okay, that's the end. But I do feel like, and, and I like ambiguous endings, but I don't think you're meant to think at the end of this, like, oh, maybe not much was really accomplished here. And I feel like a sense of what exactly did this filibuster do would have maybe fit better with the the sort of patriotic one man changes the system message. Even though to me, I think I, of course, would appreciate uh, something where you show that the filibuster didn't accomplish anything. Like maybe they just take up the bill the next day and pass it or something like that, which is probably what would happen in real life. Yeah, I was I was fine with where it ended because that was clearly the climax and I got enough out of it to know that uh, Senator Smith is making waves in Washington, Josh. Yeah, yeah, he is. Uh, I feel like uh, it's uh, maybe George Santos, the modern Senator Smith. <laughs> I think the exact opposite, you know. He Smith should... is too honest and Santos was the exact opposite. But, but you know, he, uh, he didn't <laughs> listen to what anybody told him. He did exactly, uh, you know, what he thought was best himself so uh, the straight talk express yeah like john mckay exactly let's should we talk about gene arthur i mean like you said she's actually top build here she has a very large part even if she's not actually the lead as saunders the secretary and she's not just a secretary i mean she's obviously a very savvy political operative she knows how things work she knows how to write a bill i mean you get the impression that she probably did a lot of the work for the senator who smith is replacing who died and she's great gene arthur in this film and she does have that hero's journey where, like, um, you know, everything's down. She leaves town and she comes back and rallies the troops. In this case, Senator Smith being the troops, right? Right. But that scene is my probably my favorite scene from a technical standpoint. And we know Capra is not a very show off you would style, like, but where he's pretty much being run out of town. And I believe it's either, I think it's probably a train station or a bus station, but whatever. Smith is in the shadows um, and you see him with his suitcase and his head hung low. And then you see uh, Saunders kind of saunter up Mm. to him, if you will, Josh, and and give him the big like comeback speech. And I think that was a a really good way to shoot it. And, you know, yeah, she, she delivers. And that's, that's at the Lincoln Memorial, that scene, right? Your favorite place. Yeah. Well, then I don't even, maybe there's no, uh, maybe there's no bus or train stop. Maybe that's where he was going eventually. Right. I think he's eventually going to go out of town, but he's, you know, uh, comforting himself at his favorite place, the Lincoln Memorial. And I think that's why she says, she's like, I knew you'd be here. Like, where else would you go? But the Lincoln Memorial. Featuring best statue work. Right. Exactly. I know how much you loved its work in this film. I thought you would remember. (laughs) Yeah. I like a good statue. That part. Um, so many fun supporting performances too. Any others that stand out to you? Well, I, I like. I really did like the uh, president of the Senate. To me, that was the best one. Claude Rains is obviously like going big here, but uh, you know that's Claude Rains, right? What he does. So um, 
uh, uh, so those were the two two favorites for me. Yeah, I always like Eugene Pallette, who's another one of these uh, character actors who's in like a hundred movies a year for ten years and uh, has that very distinctive voice. He plays uh, McGann, the the sort of I don't even know what his position is, but he's like Taylor's guy, heavy who, right. right? Who's yeah. there to keep everything on track, and he has that distinctive kind of raspy voice, and he's always yeah, we got to go. Take him out to see the Taurus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that type of exactly. Like how threatening. Take him over to see the Washington Monument, if you know what I mean. Right, which is what he <laughs> so, means is take him to see the Washington yeah. Monument. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You want me to take him on a sightseeing tour? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> okay, I'll do that. So, Dave, uh, did you enjoy this film? I thought it was all right. I, you know, just like you guys are talking about, like a lot of that, you know, the politics of it were just, you know, so quaint. And, you know, it's just so difficult to watch from today's perspective. I really liked Edward Arnold. I liked every time he was on screen. Um, he was great. But, uh, yeah, it was it was fine. It was, you know, it was fun when it was fun. And then it was kind of slow the rest of the time. Yeah, I mean, it is a bit long. And I think, you know, Jason is right that you could tighten things up here a bit and it would uh, it would be helpful. But uh, yeah, yeah, Frank Capra. Yeah, Why sure. don't you listen to those of us who know things? <laughs> All of us a little <laughs> underwhelmed with one of the greatest films ever made. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you read about these kind of cool stats, right? Like, you know, we're talking about uh, this time around World War II, and we've covered movies where uh, Germany has already invaded France, Josh. And when Germany invaded France, uh, they banned basically all movies that they wanted to ban. And before that ban went into place, uh, one movie theater, uh, this was the movie that they showed uh, in France as the last movie before the ban went into effect. And one theater screened it for 30 days nonstop. Yeah, I mean, you can see that that this would be something that if you're faced with uh, oppression, that would seem inspirational. So, I mean, you know, maybe we're just too cynical to to see that or to appreciate it rather. Uh, definitely. We have been beaten up and kicked and abused by the machine. And now we're just trying to live our lives adjacent to it without getting sucked into it, Josh. So true. So true. Wow. <laughs> so you want to rate this out of uh, five Lincoln five Memorials? Five filibusters? Five filibusters? That's better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, does that mean we have to rate it in a very long, yeah. verbose fashion? Yeah, you so. need to you need to really uh, go through all of your uh, you know read read us your your assessment Every of it. Or that I have, yeah. And, yeah, I gave it three. Uh, really, kind of ticks up towards the end, and obviously, it's a classic. It's three filibusters for me. Yeah, I give it three also, and I mean, you know, it's a movie that that people should should, should see, and I feel like I can appreciate its place in film history more than enjoy it all that much but uh yeah three filibusters for me so dave yep three for me as well matt we're all in agreement about being uh we've crossed party lines yes. to agree on this yes, yes. exactly what, it, what this film should be rated we're yeah. gonna pass that three star bill so yeah. <laughs> we'll come back and talk about the legacy of mr smith goes to washington Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1939, we are talking about Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And Jason, you know, we joked about the possibility of Adam Sandler remaking this film, but there were some odd adaptations of this film over the years. Um, They never, there was a time then that was uh, possible that there was going to be a sequel. That never happened. But But it did have a great, title mr smith starts a riot i'm a, you're like what would that have entailed really because mr smith does not seem like a riot guy we're gonna well well josh this election was rigged see the voting machines didn't work we're gonna march down to the capitol building and storm that capitol i'll stay in the back and then uh, pretend i didn't do it so i could try to cheat my way back in but whatever yeah mr smith a populist hero <laughs> I don't know if Mr. Smith's uh, political motivations would uh, would work here, as we said today, but uh, or where they would end up. <laughs> but that, what if it was just you know a, uh, he went crazy at a concert? And yeah, started <laughs> nothing a riot, to do with politics you know. whatsoever. Yeah, uh, Mr. Smith did not ever start a riot. That did not happen. But in 1962, so quite a while later, uh, it was adapted into a TV sitcom that ran just for one season and. I, it seems like was was 
not exactly as politically strong as this film. It gave Mr. Smith like a wife. And I think it was more just about like, you know, Senator, uh, you know, tries to get things done. And there's some episodes on YouTube and I was going to watch one and I, I ended up running out of time, but I did like look at the beginning and it's so, um, you know, it's very like old sitcom-y. It has this theme song, you know, it's like, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. You know, and it's like, okay, you know what you're getting into. And uh, like the one episode that I, that was, was, was available, you know, that someone had posted on YouTube because it like guest stars, the Marx brothers, you know, that's why, but that's the kind of thing that you were ending up with, within, in that sitcom. Dave, I think you have a new job, which is to incorporate Josh's singing into the, the, the uh, credits of this episode. Yeah. yeah. Our song. Yeah. So that'll be uh, fun. It's high quality stuff. I don't, I could I, mean, I should have looked up all the lyrics because it's a whole song about Mr. Smith and what he's trying to get done. And you know, it's a, it's a little sitcom thing. Please do. Yeah. Please sing it no, for us. I think that was enough of that. You know, Jack Benny did an episode, Mr. Benny goes to Washington. That would be fun. There's a lot of these, of course, the strangest one is the, uh, to me, would be the Frank Capra Jr. produced remake of this within his Billy Jack series, Billy Jack Goes to Washington, Tom Laughlin series. Yeah, and that, I've never seen any of the Billy Jack movies, but that is one of these like fascinating, you know, outsider art things that that guy is sort of like the Tommy Wiseau of the 1970s, I think, in some ways. And it's crazy that, I mean, like that Jack Benny thing you mentioned, or there's a lot of other like sort of homages to this that are obviously unofficial and that however was a completely authorized remake from with frank capra jr as you said and it follows the plot pretty closely from what i've read and i didn't watch it because i'm not going to do that but um the whole billy jack phenomenon is very strange maybe we'll get to it if we do one of those years someday in the 70s yeah, I uh, I have seen the distinguished gentleman, uh, but I don't remember that being. I don't, uh, you know, I'm I haven't seen it in so long. I can't say how that was or wasn't uh, attuned to this. But uh, this one sounded interesting, Josh. The 2019 Australian political drama television series Total Control uh, features a new senator being an indigenous Australian woman, and uh, she's being recruited to the Australian Senate. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of like this outsider coming in and shaking things up in a political machine or whatever is is a common storyline. And it's not always like a straight remake of this, but maybe this was the first movie to bring that story to life. Lots of uh, lots of versions of it on The Simpsons, as we know. <laughs> Mr. Lisa goes to Washington, probably the biggest one, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, again, it's a, it's one of those things that it's it's easy to parody. It's easy to reference. It's something that even if you haven't seen, you're probably familiar with some of the iconic moments of it if you watch it now. Yeah. Did you ever see the uh, Mr. Spritz Goes to Washington episode where Mel Gibson plays Jefferson Smith? Probably. But I mean, I, I don't remember every Simpsons episode I watched back in the day. Simpsons did it. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. They did do it multiple times, as you said. Uh, Josh, do you want to talk about Jimmy uh, Stewart or Frank Capra next? Yeah, you you choose. Either way, we're going to talk about both of them. Okay. Well, Frank Capra, as we said, is one of the uh, you know most influential, most uh, distinguished, um, and most awarded directors of all time in Hollywood. He's won the Best Director Oscar three times, I believe. With it happened one night. Mr. Deeds goes to wash. It goes to town, and then. Uh, uh, you can't it, take uh, it with you is the third you can't one. take it with you yeah, yeah there you go josh so that's three in uh, from 1934 to 1938 yeah all of those before this and uh like i said it happened one night is great i do love that i haven't seen those other two but um he also hosted the eighth at oscar ceremony that's pretty cool yeah he was one of the founders of the director's guild i mean a major hollywood For figure even as his career as a director slowed down this was actually sort of after his major, most prolific period. And, um, you know, It's a Wonderful Life and Meet John Doe are two major films of his that come after this. But he had a tougher time getting films made. And his final feature film he made is uh, Pocket Full of Miracles in 1961 with Betty Davis, which I have seen and is not good. <laughs> um, but um, even though he stopped making films after that, he remained uh, an essential sort of booster of the film industry and involved in all those organizations. I mean, he lived for another 30 years after retiring and was just sort of this elder statesman, even though no one apparently would give him money to make a well, movie. He, 
he was working still as a documentarian and making like educational stuff, uh, science-based programming. So he was doing that. He was also, I found this interesting. Uh, Harry Cohen was the studio head uh, who gave Frank Capra the, he became the first director with his name above the title on his films. Yeah, which is something that we see is so common now, even with people who probably don't deserve the title. Uh, so, Josh, your recommendation is it happened one night, huh? Yeah, like I said, I mean, I've seen others, but unfortunately, most are like not good that I've seen and not necessarily well known that I've seen for various reasons. Um, American Madness is another like sort of earlier Frank Capra movie about, you know, uh, every man triumphing the, over the system kind of thing. And I don't remember a lot about it, but I think that was pretty decent. And one time at the TCM Festival, I saw this early, early Frank Capra sound film called The Donovan Affair, which was a fascinating thing to watch because it's uh, the soundtrack has been lost. And so at the festival, they showed the film and then they recreated all of the dialogue and music and sound effects live, which was a cool thing to watch, but it's not a very good movie. Who did the dialogue? They just had actors like, um, I don't know, some sort of improv troupe. I mean, it wasn't improvised. It was scripted. But um, I mean, it wasn't famous actors. It was some some group of actors, you know, in Hollywood or whatever, where the film festival was. And they they did all the dialogue, you know, in, in sync with the film. And there was live music and also live sound effects. That does sound like a very unique experience. It is, yeah. But again, it's like in service of a movie that is not all that good. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart, American icon. We talked about John Wayne. He's probably the other of the most American actors, right? Uh, and sure. five, five Oscar noms, a win for the Philadelphia story. That would be my pick of a, of a Jimmy Stewart movie to watch. I love that movie. Yeah, I do too. The Philadelphia story is fantastic. Um he is this very American everyman kind of person. Um, like John Wayne, he was known later for starring in a ton of Westerns. I mean, they starred together in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is a great film. Um, I this year watched um, The Man from Laramie, which I thought was fantastic. And he did a lot of films with Anthony Mann, the director of that, a lot of Westerns with him. He worked with Alfred Hitchcock a bunch of times. Of course, Rope and Rear Window and Vertigo are all amazing films. Um, I really like The Shop Around the Corner, which is a lovely romantic comedy that he made with Ernst Lubitsch. I mean, so, so many yeah. great films. It's funny because you mentioned those and we still have It's a Wonderful Life, Harvey and Anatomy of a Murder right. on the list. Yeah, so. it's a crazy list. And he worked for so long. I mean, he was a he, he died in 1997 and was a major star all the way into the 90s. His final role was a, a voice in an American tale, Five Goes West in yeah. 1991. I have this quote that I thought was uh, pretty cool. It was Cary Grant on Jimmy Stewart's acting technique. He had the ability to talk naturally. He knew that in conversations, people do often interrupt one another, and it's not always so easy to get a thought out. It took a little time for the sound men to get used to him, but he had an enormous impact. And then some years later, Marlon Brando came out and did the same thing all over again. But what people forget is that Jimmy did it first. Jimmy Stewart, pioneer of mumblecore. No, I'm just saying, though, like the natural acting technique right. is pretty, I mean, and getting that praise from Cary Grant is, is <laughs> doesn't get much better than that, does it? Right. No, I totally agree. And I think that is part of his charm and the, the, the sort of stumbling over his words or whatever gives it that naturalistic quality, but also makes him relatable because that is how people talk. Josh, here's something that's going to frighten all of us. In December 2023, the meditation app Calm announced that Stuart would be the latest narrator for its sleep story series with an AI-generated voice for the actor reading an original series called It's a Wonderful Sleep Story. Oof, yeah. I don't know hey. if anyone owns the rights to like Jimmy Stewart's voice anymore, his descendants or whatever, but hopefully someone can sue those people. <laughs> uh, that, that would make me uncalm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <sighs> AI. No, no good. No mm -hmm. good. We're going to have, we're going to have Jimmy Stewart hosting podcasts and, uh, <laughs> you know, who knows all sorts of horrible, horrifying things are going to come out of this. Yeah. So Claude Rains, another major, major, uh, Hollywood legend, um, Wolfman, Casablanca, notorious Lawrence of Arabia. Greatest story ever told. He's got a Tony and four Oscar nods. Yeah. I really like now Voyager. Where I mean, he played a lot of villains and kind of slimy characters like he plays here, but he's he's the romantic lead there with Betty Davis that has a lot of 
like iconic romance moments. That's a great film. So Josh, Jean Arthur, you're a big fan. I, I mean, I like her a lot in this film and I, I haven't seen her in a ton of things. She was known for kind of screwball comedy, uh, mainly in the 30s and and a bit in the 40s. Um, I did see this year Easy Living, which is a great comedy with her and it's incredibly progressive. That's essentially about like, it's a very progressive kind of romance film and she's she's this working girl here like she is in this film where you know, and she's not going to give up her ambitions and her independence. And so that's a really good movie. I haven't seen her in a ton of other things. I have seen Shane, which was the final film that she made in 1953. And uh, after that, she retired from movies, worked a How little- did we not talk about Shane in our 1953 season? Yeah, I think we probably talked about it in the epilogue as a, as a potential thing that we didn't do an episode on. But I mean, Shane is a classic, although it's super cheesy. Shane, come back. Exactly. Shane. That's what I, they say. That all. That's all I remember from seeing that film. Uh, and Jack Palance is great in that movie. Um, she was nominated, I believe, for Best Actress for The More the Merrier. And I've never seen the Devil and Miss Jones film series that she. You know, everyone had their own film series. Josh, you ever see any of those? No, I haven't seen those. Like I said, I've only seen her in a handful of things, and Easy Living is the one that I would recommend. But um, it's interesting that she was so reclusive. Um, not only in her later years after she essentially retired, but I guess even at the height of her fame, she didn't like to give autographs or give interviews. And this was, you know, the height of the studio system where this was part of your job. And so it's amazing that she achieved all this success without doing that stuff. I like that. I'm all for it. Oh, I agree. I, I'm impressed that she was able to do it. Hey, Josh, uh, or Dave, here's a trivia question. Dave, you said you loved Edward Arnold as Jim Taylor. What movie have we talked about that Edward Arnold kind of made an appearance in? Kind of an appearance. Was it AI Edward Arnold? <laughs> Maybe. I have no idea. Edward what is a. it? A. Arnold? <laughs> yeah. uh, an image of Arnold made a posthumous appearance in the 1984 film Gremlins as the deceased husband of Mrs. Deagle, <laughs> uh, a character much like the rich, heartless character Arnold was known for. All right. That That's is cool. That is some trivia right there. I like that. Yeah. I guess the one to watch with him is The Devil and Daniel Webster, which I haven't seen. But, you know, another uh, big actor, uh, The Toast of New York, and You Can't Take It With You, which also has uh, Gene Arthur. So lots of stuff here. Yeah. I mean, Thomas Mitchell, we said, uh, is really all over the place this year. I think we have three more Thomas Mitchell movies on the way, perhaps. So we'll, we'll get to keep talking about him. But uh, an excellent actor. And like I said, I always like Eugene Pellett. He's one of those guys that's in a million movies. And if I watch some like random obscure pre-code movie, there's a very good chance that Eugene Pellett is going to show up with his distinctive voice. I mean, he started working in the 1910s and, you know, just made dozens and dozens of movies over the course of like, uh, you know, 30, 40 years or whatever before he retired. There's so many actors who are like uncredited or have small parts in this. I'm, I marked a few down like Hank Mann, who was a silent film star who plays a photographer here. Um, and Harry Carey, who played the president of the Senate, was one of the biggest uh, uh, stars of the silent film era. So uh, he, you know, just good stuff all the way through to keep these legends working. Josh. Right. And that's interesting because, of course, a lot of Harry Carey's acting in this film is just like facial expressions. You know, it's just reactions where he doesn't even necessarily say anything. And that's, you know, something that comes from silent film as well. I have one more fun fact for you, Josh. And you know, I love the fun facts. You do. Uh, we mentioned Governor Happy Hopper, played by Guy Kimmy. Sure, he has a, uh, a distinguished career, 42nd Street Gold Diggers of 1933, Captain Blood. But Guy Kimmy Eggs is a breakfast dish, which I just call, you know, eggs in a hole, toads in a basket. But the idea is you cut a hole in the bread and you crack the egg into it and fry it in a skillet. And this is because he prepared this in the film Mary Jane's Pa, and it became known as Guy Kitty Eggs. So did he invent this? I don't think so. Maybe he just popularized it. All right. Well, that is a, a fact. fun fact. A fun fact. Fun fact, mm, Josh. Very yummy, fun. yummy fact. So much fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's a delicious fact. Yeah. Do, do you have anything else you want to mention about the legacy of this film? I'm going to go eat some eggs. Yeah. All right. So that's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can filibuster us online and on social media. Oh, that sounds annoying. Yeah, it so. does really. Don't but just find us on the socials, awesomemovieyear.com, awesomemovieyear on Facebook and 
Instagram awesome movie pod on Josh's uh, only news site that he gets all his news from X slash Twitter. Mm. And uh, we're uh, we're at those things. I'm Jason Harris comedy or Jarris comedy on all the socials. Go for Jason on Letterboxd. Huge gains this year. I can feel it. Just, that's that's great. Getting all the votes there. Um, you can find some uh, some older stuff for me at joshbellhateseverything.com. I am at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook at Signal Bleed. Yes, on X Twitter, where there's still some stuff worth seeing, I guess. And uh, also at Signal Bleed on Blue Sky and on Letterboxd. And if you are on Letterboxd and you watch one of the films we talk about, tag Awesome Movie Year in your review. We'd love to see what you think of the films that we talk about. And uh, we're going to get that to happen eventually. <laughs> also, listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Jason, what are we talking about in our next episode? Well, we have reconfigured the season to kind of add some new things in. And we are doing a category on animation, Josh. And we are doing a... I didn't even know this movie, but it's uh, the 1939 animated version of Gulliver's Travels. So tune in next time for Gulliver's Travels, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.